Welcome to the Southcrest Live podcast. If this is your first time to listen, please connect with us at www.southcrest.org for more information. Thanks for listening and enjoy today's message. Philippians chapter 1, we began last week looking at a book that talks about the joy of the Lord. Philippians chapter 1, beginning in verse 3, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine making request for you all with joy, for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ, just as it is right for me to think this of you all because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my chains and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers with me of grace. For God is my witness, how greatly I long for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. And this I pray that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and all discernment, that you may approve the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense until the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God." A family went to the movies, and on the way in, the young man in the family stopped at the concession stand to get some popcorn. By the time he got his popcorn and a drink, as he went into the theater, it had already dimmed the lights, and it was starting, and he couldn't find his family. It was dark. He walked up and down the aisle a couple of times, and finally, in desperation, he stopped, and he just asked out loud, Does anyone in here recognize me? (laughs) It's well lit when you came in here today. But there may be some people who feel like that young man, who are lost, who are isolated, disconnected from church, and they're deep down crying out, Does anybody in here recognize me? Does anyone in here care? People long for Christian fellowship. Now, the local church is not supposed to be like a theater where you come in and find a seat next to folks that you don't have any relationship with and watch the performance and then file out. And that's part of the problem because a lot of people have that attitude about church. You just come, do your thing, get it over with. I even had a man tell me one time at 8 o'clock, but when we, had the eight, when we started the 8 o'clock service, he said, I'm so glad that you have an 8 o'clock service so my wife and I like to come get it over with. That really happened. But did you know that is foreign to the New Testament? The New Testament sees the church as the people of God, a living body of believers that are knit together by their union with Christ. And it's evident that the Philippian church was Paul's favorite. Of all the churches that he planted, Philippi was in his heart. 
It was his sweetheart place. It was the place where when he wrote this letter, he wrote it in a personal way, letting them know how much he loved them. You see, this church was always seeking to help Paul. Herschel Hobbes states in his book, there are three kinds of friends. Those who want you to do something for them. Those who do little or nothing for you and expect nothing in return. And then there are those who are always seeking to do something good for you. Philippi fell into that third category. I want to know, how do you look at church? I'm not talking about what your appearance is today. I'm talking about how do you feel about church? See, a lot of people have a bad attitude about it. A lot of people say, I don't need the church. Well, the church is not this building. The church is the people. And Jesus is the head of the church, not the pastor. Not anybody on the staff. Jesus is the head. We are the body of Christ. But how do you look at church? And I want us to look at the way Paul looked at the Philippian church, and we can get some great principles and truths in how we ought to look at the church. First of all, you look back with constant appreciation. You know, look back. I thank my God. Present tense verb. I continuously thank God. And the word thank is the word eucharisteo. We get our word eucharist, which is a liturgical term. We don't use it much in Baptist circles, but it literally is a word that stands for communion or the Lord's Supper. And, and that word refers to an aspect of communion that gives thanks. Thanks for what Jesus has done. We give thanks to God. Eucharist means to give thanks. Paul's teaching our prayer should be filled with thanksgiving. I thank God for you. I look back and I thank God of all the people that have influenced my life. Can you think of that? I mean, when you look back, some of you may be like me. Your earliest recollection is the church and attending church. I thought I was born in the nursery at the church. But I look back and I have so many wonderful memories of people who sacrificed for me, of teachers who taught me, of teachers who loved me. I don't remember everything they taught, but I do remember they loved me and that they gave of their time in order for me as a child to be able to do some things. And then the young, the, uh, the, as I grew to be a young man and preached my first sermon, I loved the people that endured that just like I love you for enduring every week. You see, we ought to thank God for the church. And by, and by the way, I want to call your attention to something. In, in verse 4, for you all with joy, verse 6, uh, verse 7, you all, you all, and verse 8, you all. Paul was a southerner, you can tell. <laughs> you all. I pray for you all. He, he's talking about the whole church. He's not talking about just one or two people. He's talking about the whole group. I, I'm thankful for you all. I am thankful for you all. Y'all, that's how we say it in Texas. If you're going to live in Texas, you need to learn that word and fiction. You need y'all and fiction. But the fact is, he said, I am so thankful. And if you think about it, why was he thankful for them? Why was he so appreciative of them? First of all, because of their friendship. Verse 3, 
upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, making requests for you all with joy. Every time I remember you, I am thankful for you. People and friends that are real are few and far between. They, the church at Philippi was helping Paul. He's in prison. They sent him an offering. They helped him. They sent him encouragement. And you know, when you find, when we find ourselves in difficult circumstances or horrible personal circumstances, one thing that can bring joy in our life is remembering the faithful people of God who love you and pray for you. Lawrence Peters noted that you can always tell a real friend by the fact that when you've made a fool of yourself, he doesn't feel like you've done a permanent job. If you count your real friends on one hand, you may know a lot of people, but real friends. Paul said, y'all been real friend to me. Your friendship means the world. And he says, with all joy. You know, it's interesting. These people brought joy to his heart. Let me ask you something. Do you bring joy to people's hearts? Are you the kind of person that brings joy, or do you suck the life out of everybody you meet? <laughs> there are people like that, aren't there? Amen? Amen. The word joy is a key word in the book of Philippians. Almost 20 times that derivative of joy is used. But it's interesting, Paul never gives a definition of joy. He gives a demonstration of it. You see, Philippians gives a, a def, doesn't give a definition, it gives a demonstration. And it comes when you love the Lord and you have friends who love the Lord. That's part of it. It's a demonstration. Another reason that he looks back with appreciation is because of their fellowship. Fellowship. In Baptist circles, we used to use the word fellowship for a party. We're going to have a fellowship Friday night or a fellowship Sunday night after church or whatever. Fellowship, the word koinonia, means much more than a meeting or a party. It actually is used for two actions that include fellowship. One of them is communion. One of them is contribution. In other words, communion together to have fellowship with someone means that you are united with them in some way. You share something with them and you contribute to each other's lives. Koinonia means to have all things in common. 1 John 1, 9 says, If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from sin. The New Testament never uses the word for church membership. Now, membership is a good thing. We, we want to know who our members are. And when you join something, you're more likely to be a part of it than if you're just a, a constant attender. But, but it always uses the word fellowship, the fellowship of believers. It means joint participation. And they had participated, participated with Paul in the extension of the gospel. We can pray for our missionaries. We participate with them by praying for them, by giving to missions, by supporting them. And he was so proud that he said from the first day until now, they were not quitters. 
lot of you have been involved since the beginning. You didn't quit. I love people that don't quit, don't you? Really. It's nothing more discouraging than when somebody just quits. Just, just quits. It's not very encouraging, is it? And why do you not quit? Because you love Jesus, that's why. And when you love Jesus, you love the fellowship of other people. Warts and all, mistakes and all, faults and all. And you do things for one another. A businessman was asked about his feelings toward a competitor up the street. He said, there's nothing in the world I wouldn't do for Bill Johnson. And there's nothing he wouldn't do for me. And that's the way we are. We go through life doing nothing for each other. <laughs> that is not fellowship. Look at the Philippian church. A jailer. A violent man who would have killed himself in that crisis except he had been restrained by Paul. A slave girl who had been delivered from a demon. A businesswoman who had traded purple cloth in Asia and had been a Jewish proselyte and others. And there's very little to bind them together. They're not of the same social economic status. They're not of the same race. They're not, they have nothing in common out in the culture. What bound them together? They had fellowship in the gospel of God. You see, when you, when you have a church based on uh, affluence, you're going to leave out the poor people. When you, when you have a church that's based on social lines, you're going to exclude those who are not in your social circle or are not on your level. When you have a church that's, that's formed by intelligence, I'm going to stop right there. <laughs> Why, what binds us together? Gospel of Jesus Christ. Bruce Larson shared about a woman who on the advice of her doctor had gone see a pastor to talk about joining the church. And she had recently had a facelift. And when her doctor dismissed her, here's what he said to her. My dear, I've done an extraordinary job on your face, as you can see in the mirror. I've charged you a great deal of money, and you were happy to pay it. But I want you, I want to give you some free advice. Find a group of people who love God and who will love you enough to help you deal with all the negative emotions inside of you. If you don't, you'll be back in my office in a very short time with your face in far worse shape than before. Friendship, fellowship, I encourage you to be in a Sunday school class or a life group. They're the same thing. Because in a church our size, with as many services as we have, if you don't have a life group or a Sunday school class, there are going to be people that don't know your name except those that you sit around in this service or get in your seat and you get all upset about it. The fact is... I, trust me on this. I know. I've done a lot of funerals. 250 in the last 18 years. And I can tell you, I can tell the difference between a family that's in a Sunday school class 
and those who don't because of the response is incredible. That fellowship group, that life group, they're the ones that cry with you. They're the ones that rejoice with you. They're the ones that are stand by you when you're going through difficult times. And yeah, they even bring food when you need it. Fellowship. I look back. You know what? I can think of a few rough times in church. I can think of a few times when people didn't act very Christ-like. And I can either focus on that. I've met some hard-headed people, believe it or not. I can focus on that. But far outweighing that are the people that I look back and think, I'm so thankful that they were in my life. I'm so thankful that I got to be part of them. I'm so thankful for them. I think about the people who, who had to listen to my first sermon. They were very encouraging. Constant appreciation. Paul goes on, he says, you look forward with complete assurance. Verse 6, being confident of this very thing. The word confident Perfect tense of completeness. Perfect tense means something happens and the effects keep going on. I am confident. I was made confident then. I still am. Confident of this very thing. Being fully persuaded is what the word means. Two things. First, in the enabler. He who began a good work in you. Who is that he? It's Jesus. It's the Lord. It's God's work. We sometimes forget that God is working in the lives of others. You're sitting in a construction zone. Everyone in here who knows Jesus is still being worked on. Right? Who's working on them? Jesus. Holy Spirit. And he is the enabler. He who began a good work in you is going to keep on doing it. You and I can't finish the job. You ever started something you couldn't finish? One little boy came home and said, Daddy, Jimmy's daddy has a list of men that he says he can whip. And your name's number one on the list. <laughs> is that true? Yes, sir. So Tommy's daddy went down to see Jimmy's daddy. He said, I want to ask you a question. Your son told my son that you have a list of men that you can whip. My name's number one on the list. Is that right? He said, that's right. Tommy's daddy got right up in Jimmy's face and said, you're not going to whip me. What are you going to do about it? Jimmy's dad said, I'm going to take your name off the list. Sometimes you start something you can't finish. God's not that way. Listen, you don't hold on to God. I want to amen every now. I want one after this statement. You don't hold on to God. He's holding on to you. 
He is the enabler. He is the one that started the good work. Maybe you heard the gospel in church. Maybe you heard it in Sunday school. But the Holy Spirit is the one who spoke to your heart, convicting you of sin, convincing you need to be saved, and you committed your life to Jesus, and he came into you, washed you clean with the righteousness of Jesus, and he's the one that started the work. He's the enabler. But Paul's also confident of the enablement. He said he will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. It means that sanctification is an ongoing process. He's still working on you and me. (laughs) We look back with appreciation and I'm so thankful that the Lord is changing lives. I, I've, one of the joys of my heart and one of the blessings of being in a place as long as I've been, and Laura and I have been, is that we've seen God change so many of your lives. And mine too. I'm not the same person I was 32 years ago. It's, it's a joy to see what the Lord's doing. He's going to complete it until the day of Jesus. Until Jesus comes or he calls us home. You see, he looked back with all this appreciation. He looked forward with assurance, but then he looks around. And he sees, he looks around with the love of Christ, with Christ-like affection. Paul felt that he was justified in his confidence, but he said, I have you in my heart. Cardia. It's the Greek word, cardiac, heart. It was considered the center of a person's inner life. All the emotions and all of the um, desires and passions all come from the heart. And Paul loved them with a deep abiding love. And how could he love them? Think about it. Think of, They had nothing in common. How did he love them? Why? Because... He could love them as people of grace. People of grace, partakers. Verse 7, you are partaker with me of grace. It's a derivative of koinonia. It puts the, the prefix son, which was added for emphasis. He's saying, we're all partakers. We're, we're in it together. The fellowship of grace. Fellowship, two fellows in the same ship. I have you in my heart. It was the source of, of that. We're, we're a result of grace. We don't all agree on everything, do we? So what binds us together? Have you ever noticed how many weird people you're sitting by today? <laughs> I mean, look around you. Have you ever thought about it that all of us are weird in somebody's eyes? Really? Think about it. We are. But what binds us together? Grace. We're the result of grace. Let me tell you, you're going to need to extend a lot of grace if you're going to be part of a church, especially this one. We're about to undergo some remodeling. You think that's going to be fun? And by the way, you can't feed on Wednesday nights for a while. There's going to be a lot of mad Baptists going they can't eat. Until we get it fixed. (laughs) You can't find a parking place. I'm so glad you extend grace and don't run over somebody out there. 
He said, I love you because you're also a people of God. I love you with the affection of Jesus Christ. It states his feelings came from the Lord. He looks back with constant appreciation and he looks forward with assurance and he looks around with affection that you're in Jesus Christ. But then finally you look inside for Christ-honoring attitudes and actions. Paul prayed in verse 9, and this I pray that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and all discernment. As we grow in the Lord, there's going to be some evidence of it. And he said, first of all, I'm praying that your love will abound, to abound in love. And the word agape is the word. It's not an emotional, agape is not an emotional love. It's a choice. It has nothing to do with feelings. It's what you do because God's put it in your heart. Now, some feelings may come with that eventually, but to love the way God loves is not emotional at all. It is a love that says, I choose to love you because you are a person of grace. You are a person that's saved by grace of God. You're part of the fellowship. I love you because of God in your life. It's the highest quality of love. It's the first fruit produced by the Holy Spirit. Galatians 5 says, the fruit of the Spirit is agape, is love. Jesus said in John 13, 35, by this shall all men know you are my disciples, my followers, if you have love one to another. And the word abound, to abound in love means not to just get by, it means to overflow. It's a superabundance. Overflow the cup. Now, now stay with me. I want you to notice something. I pray that your love may abound still more and more two ways. In knowledge, epinosis, which is a deeper kind of knowledge. A knowledge that says, I know who I am in the Lord. I know what the Word of God says. I can apply that to life. It's a deeper knowledge. You know, there's a lot of knowledge in the world today. Just ask Siri or Alexa. Half the time she doesn't know, but you still ask her. Am I right? Some of you are going, who's Siri? (laughs) Or who's Alexa? That's not the knowledge he's talking about. He's talking about a deeper knowledge. A knowledge on the inside that says, I know who I am as a child of God. I am a person of grace. He started the work in me. He's going to enable it. I'm growing in him. I'm still a work in progress. And it leads you to to extend grace to other people, to love more and more people. But then he uses the word discernment. It's the ability to separate the good from the bad, or the important from the unimportant. Not only does our love grow, but it's got to be perfectly channeled. A person with love and no discernment can easily be led astray doctrinally. You see, we're we're living in a society that's going by feelings. I feel this, or I don't feel this, or I feel like this is okay, and I don't feel like... It's all feelings. You hurt my feelings. 
Now, those are real, but you've got to have some discernment. Love without discernment is emotionalism. <laughs> and man, we're surrounded by it. It's in all kinds of churches today. There's no discernment about the Word of God. There's no truth, no, no absolutes there. It's all love. Now, if you have discernment, you've got the truth, and you've got no love, that's legalism. <laughs> and we got those two. You better do this. You better not do this. If you do this, you're going to hell. If you don't do this, you're going to hell. So Paul is saying, I pray that you'll have God's love for people, but you'll also have the discernment to know the truth of God in your life. And when you have that, I hate to use the word spiritualism because what I mean by that is you're walking in the Spirit of God. Give me the discernment. Help me to love other people. Sometimes that's hard, isn't it? Does anybody ever get on your last nerve? <laughs> anybody at church ever gotten on your last nerve? Absolutely. A lady was a clerk at a dress shop. She got fired. Somebody asked her, why did you get fired? She said, well, a lady came in and tried on 25 dresses. It took several hours. She couldn't find what she liked. She finally said she would like something that looked, she would look good in something flowing. So I suggested the river. <laughs> I got to confess to you, I have felt that way sometimes. And you have too, or you wouldn't be laughing. I found a cartoon of a grumpy old man saying, that praying for your enemy stuff doesn't work. They're still here and they're still in good health. That's not how you pray for your enemies. His second desire was for them to approve the excellent. The word approve suggests you smell something quickly, quick of scent. <laughs> it was one who's able to detect that which is not pure. Quick detection. Hey, something's here. You ever use the term, I smell a rat? Quick of scent. That's not exactly the analogy, but it's, it, you're quick to avoid even the appearance of evil. The word is a technical term for testing money. If it was counterfeit, it's found in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, where it says that, you know, verse 2 says we to approve the things that are excellent to the Lord. It's a word. We're living in a permissive society that basically says there is no absolute truth, that every situation determines the morality of the moment or the ethics. They call that situational ethics. Or we we live in what's called the new morality. But folks, I want to tell you, there is absolute truth. I can prove it. Next time you take a math test, just give a good impression. <laughs> Everybody's doing their own thing. In times like these, we need to pray that God's children have the ability to discern the excellent. God, what do you want me to do? How do I live my life that looks beyond just now? 
Help me to live my life that looks beyond the appearance of evil. Sometimes people who are believers do things that just look wrong. They don't even think about it. His third desire was that they would avoid hypocrisy. Sincere. That you may be sincere. Interesting word. The Latin term means without wax. In ancient days when they would make pottery and they would fire it, sometimes there'd be a crack that would form when it came out of the oven. They would take it out. The dishonest ones would then put some type of wax in that crack and then refire it. And when it came out, it looked fine, except when you put it out in the sunlight, you could see it then. And the word sincere means sun-judged. Sort of like an x-ray will show a crack in a bone when you wouldn't be able to see it. Obviously, we couldn't see it inside. But, but, but it would show, and the, the sun would reveal the flaw in the pottery, and the honest merchants would advertise their porcelain as sincere. You can put it out in the sun, and you can tell it's real. Sometimes the word sincere was used to shake back and forth like a sieve when you were in the old time when they would sift flour or grains of some kind. They, and God seems to sift us at times, doesn't he, to get the foreign matter out of us. But then he said that you may be sincere and without offense to be blameless. That word that we get our word blameless is the little mechanism in a trap that you would put the bait on. It would be the, what would catch, or it would trigger what would catch the animal. He's saying as a believer, you don't want to do anything that would cause somebody to stumble or to walk away. And in these two words, sincere and blameless, he's referring to the inward part of us and the outward actions. I pray that you would be real people. Like the little girl following her dad in a newly planted yard that had some places of sod, and he would step on that sod and stay out of the mud. And she said, Daddy, if you don't get your, your feet muddy, I won't get any mud on me either. And finally, he says, my prayer is, his prayer was to, for them to abide in Christ. He mentions our fruit, verse 11, being filled Having been filled. It's a passive participle, which means that we receive the action from him. We have been filled with him, and as a result, the fruits of righteousness are shown in our life, the way that we live. So many people today approach Christian life from the wrong starting point. They think, well, if I just go to church, just get it over with, but to abide in Christ means you're connected to him. You can't produce the fruits of righteousness without Jesus. Because the righteousness of man is as filthy rags 
compared to the righteousness of God. In World War, right after World War I, none of us were there. Lawrence of Arabia came to Paris, brought some of the people from Arabia. Now, you remember, this was back in the early 1900s. <laughs> I get amused now when young people say, were you born in the 1900s? As a matter of fact, I was. But that wasn't that long ago. However, early 1900s after World War I, Lawrence of Arabia came to Paris with some of the folks from Arabia, and he showed them all the sites, the Louvre, and, the, and the, all the stuff that's there, the Ark of Triumph and stuff like that. But they weren't impressed. What impressed them were the faucets on the bathtub in the hotel. They sat there and turned it off and on, off and on. They didn't have running water where they lived. When it came time for them to leave, to go back to Arabia, Lawrence of Arabia found those people that came with him in the bathrooms with wrenches trying to take the faucets off the bathtub. And they said, if we could just take these home, we'll have all the water that we need. He had to explain to them that they were connected to a series of plumbing and so forth. But how many people try to live some semblance of a Christian life and they're not connected to Jesus? The world's full of them. Religious people who think they can live the kind of life that will get them to God but they're not connected to the one mediator between God and man, Jesus Christ. He said that you would have the fruits of righteousness. Doesn't mean we're perfect. You don't walk around humming hymns all day or spiritual songs. You're not walking around with some Jesus freak smile on your face all the time. Now, those of you who don't even know what a Jesus freak is, back in our days, they were... Jesus freaks, and they weren't bad. <laughs> just what they called us. But it was like, they just smile. No, you don't smile all the time. you still got your life to live. But you're living a life honoring the Lord. Wilbur Reese wrote this little bit of sarcasm that describes a lot of people today. He said, I'd like to buy $3 worth of God, please. Not enough to explode my soul or disturb my sleep, but just enough to equal a cup of warm milk or a snooze in the sunshine. I don't want enough of him to make me love somebody with different color skin or pick beets with a migrant. I want ecstasy, not transformation. I want the warmth of the womb, not a new birth. I want a pound of the eternal in a paper sack. I'd like to buy $3 worth of God, please. How much of God do you want? Because I want to tell you, when the Lord comes into your life, He changes everything. You're a work in progress. Not, you're not working to be saved. You are saved instantly. You are justified instantly. 
but the sanctification, the becoming more like him, the growing in Christ is a process, and we are all still works in progress. I'm not what I ought to be, and I'm not what I'm going to be, but thank God I'm not what I used to be. And if you don't know Jesus, you're not connected. But you can be today. You ask God to forgive you. You believe that Jesus died for your sin. And you place your faith and trust in him. Some of you need to be connected. Some of you need Jesus Christ today. You don't have to join our church. You don't have to be a member here to be saved. But you've got to be know Jesus to be saved. Some of you may be looking for a fellowship of believers. I invite you here. Listen, I know these people. They're awesome. Not perfect. They know I'm not perfect. But we love each other because we're people of grace. Would you bow your heads with me? Thanks for listening and enjoy today's message.